Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah, the most gracious ever, merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. And welcome to the Drive Time Show here at Voice of Islam Radio. You're joined by myself, Salman, and uh, my dear brother, Fahim. Fahim, how are you doing today? I'm good. Excited for the show. How are you doing? Ah, very well, by the grace of Allah. As always, we are discussing two very interesting topics today um the first one being schools fit for the purpose or not is a question yeah we will be discussing this in, in in great detail we will be having great expert guest callers that will obviously tell us um from their own expertise as well and we have a question that we are asking on our socials the question is what are your thoughts on homeschooling let us know what you think you can find us at voice of islam uk on instagram as well as twitter and if you would like to join the discussion here in the studio today you can give us a call on 0208 that is 0208 in the second hour we will then be talking about jews and arabs are they adversaries or are the allies is the question. I think the answer is pretty obvious. But um, we will be talking about this in great detail in the second hour. For him, are schools fit for the purpose or not? So, I was thinking about this on the way here. I think that schools have definitely changed. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that. I'm going to say that schools, for me, I think... Do they give you the education? Because I've seen a lot of movements online as well talking about how schools aren't really teaching us the things that we need as adults. Mm-hmm. They're teaching us how to memorize a few things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And like, you know, why aren't there things like uh, how to do your taxes, how to buy a house? Like, why aren't these things or more cooking and more, you know? Just things that will actually benefit you on a daily basis. Yeah. One, these things being yeah. taught. So there's that side of things. And then when the conversation of homeschooling and um, going to school, from obviously I haven't been to school for a while, mm-hmm. but um, from what I've seen online, I've seen uh, quite a lot of lack of discipline, especially um, amongst students and, and and look I'm not trying to make a generalization here there are I'm sure some very well behaved students and obviously the the, the more uh, volatile situations get more viral online but I can understand where a parent as a parent myself why I may be more reluctant mm. to send a child to school these days yeah so yeah. It, I think yes they're fit for purpose but I think there definitely needs to be an overhaul because ultimately it provides, um, you know, uh, people with school meals. Mm. Uh, it provides people with uh, the education, you know, in, in various things like English and maths, etc. You know, these are really integral things that you're going to need throughout life. But I think there definitely needs to be an overhaul, especially with the implementation of AI now. Mm. I think that we need to understand more about how to use AI and use it because the thing is is that we're becoming lazier as well right yeah. instead of thinking about oh I want to um, you know I, I need to write an essay on something you can get ChatGPT to do that right <laughs> like so I, d- I don't know how that's going to change but yeah I think that more practical advice 
or and and helping people realize you know what is beyond school what is life and this is where religion comes into it as well and i think that because there's such a lack of religion uh among society these days i think that that's where school kind of needs to pick up the slack a bit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that was my very long uh two cents <laughs> how about yourself um no yeah um i agree with you i just think that you see when we are um adapting to everything that's around us in in all fields of life when it comes to the schooling or the teaching or the the curriculum the syllabus it seems like we are probably still stuck somewhere um in 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 the last century hmm. sometimes it, it it seems to me like this um everything else is is being looked at is being revised yes the schooling system has made some improvements but it's still as you said um from a life's point of view from a more practical point of view we are not giving enough to our children to be able to really uh, excel in life and even today um youngsters will have to face certain challenges and hurdles and break their own rules and make their own bridges to be able to excel in life mm-hmm. whereas that's something maybe they should have been taught earlier on yeah with the experience um previous generations have had throughout their lives but somehow it seems like it seems like that the same mistakes and same experiences are being made again maybe that's something we can look at from a islamic point of view yeah. though, really quickly before we go into that yeah. um there's one thing that if somebody was to call and tell me about because i've never understood this why did we change from a b c d to like numbers Have you heard about this? Like, I, Super confusing. Like, I just don't understand it. So why? Confusing. Why did that happen? So, um, if there's a, if there's anyone who wants to give us a call uh, on zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight, um, and let us know why did it go from ABC to one two three? Yep. As you were saying, the Holy Quran, and why do we mention the Holy Quran? Because this is Voice of Islam, and our primary, of uh, um, sort of goal here is. to give the islamic perspective on things and the islamic perspective as they were brought to us by the holy prophet muhammad may the peace and blessings of allah be upon him and through the promised messiah mirza ghulam ahmed of qadian peace be upon him who is the founder of the amdiya community so the holy quran uh, chapter 25 verse 75 says our lord grant us of our wives and our children the delight of our eyes and make us a model for the righteous now sc- schools play an important role um, for many of us um, making the ch- our children the the delight of our eyes because um one major aspect that we want our children to excel in is their education and then subsequently whatever they want to do in life whatever field they want to go to they they maybe want to become doctors or, or scientists mm. or whatever else they would want to become but the basis of this whole um thing is laid on their school education and mm. that's where they are going to grow from right yeah so i mean we we look at the example of uh, passing exams is something which makes us proud of our children or 
when they are confident or when they make the rights of friends. Um, so these are the things that we look at and we want our children to excel. Although from a Muslim's perspective, from a believer's perspective, priority should still be that our children are steadfast in their prayers, mm-hmm. that our children have a living connection with Allah the Almighty, and that our children first and foremost excel in spirituality and then obviously comes um, the worldly success as well with and there is nothing wrong with this mm. um, with having worldly success or with aiming high because you see sometimes what, what people think when we say this uh, they, they assume that okay so Islam only talks about spirituality but doesn't really yeah. uh, want you I, to I was literally going to say that yeah. Yeah. Say it doesn't categorically mean that you know forget school and just spend time in spirituality. Exactly. Right? It's, the, it's the middle way, but there's priorities. Exactly. So secular knowledge uh, plays an important role. As as we know, it is uh, narrated in a hadith, which is a narration of the Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, um, that gaining knowledge is part of your belief. So mm-hmm. because when you gain knowledge, it will make you a, a valuable asset to your society. This is when you can help others grow as well. So that's what Islam is all about. So and that's, um, as, as I was saying, from an Islamic perspective, what we want our children is to excel, obviously. And that is going to start with schools. Now, nowadays, there, there there is a big question and, and big news about this whole concept of schooling, whether kids should be going maybe we should be going for homeschooling i, I think yeah. many parents have asked this question as well yeah I, I know a few people that are homeschooling and you know um i don't think i think before it was when i say before probably about 10 15 years ago it was seem it would seem that homeschooling was more rare i feel like a lot of parents are opting to do that um why maybe we'll find out from some of our guests as well but the thing is is that our schools the question we're trying to understand uh, at the first and foremost right is our schools helping us get there to to where we want our children to be and uh, you know there are things like there's hazards in schools where the department of education figures shows absences 50 percent higher in spring 2023 than pre-covid seems as if that there are parents are no longer seeing schools as the best place for their children and mm-hmm. there's there's the aspect of of danger um you know there was the whole news story about um a lot of schools having concrete that um they were finding that isn't very stable um mm. if someone wants to correct me if i'm wrong but yeah those there, uh, buildings are being in danger of collapse yeah. with the wrong type of concrete being used the national Audit Office, yes, uh, in the 2023 report found 700,000 school buildings in need of urgent repair. Um, this coupled with things like understaffing um, at like seriously chronic levels, I think mm-hmm. that um, mm-hmm. uh, COVID was a big factor of this with the uh, um, vacancies like ne- nearly doubling since then, right? And um, I think that is there's a quality issue as well i think that because of this understaffing um at these chronic levels uh this leading to to more 
poor quality teaching where teachers and schools uh, leaders are working under more crippling workloads so you know it's only natural if you're you experience it in in the workplace as well. If if a team member leaves or if there's uh, less of you, there's a lot more things that you have to do. It means that quality goes down. So it's only natural. So these are some of the things that potentially are leading parents to homeschool. Um, but I think I th- another important aspect though is 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 also, is also the the uh, content that mm. is is being taught, right? So some parents, for example, um, they are seriously worried about gender issues mm-hmm. um single sex toilets whether the content that is being taught is age appropriate for primary age children or not yeah. right so the, the the government only recently issued some guidance to support promotion of, of two genders but this is again only guidance so what are children being taught um how do these things are are, are are being brought to them um and whether parents feel that that is the right approach or not mm. and again as, as i was saying earlier that many parents are now trying to find out and uh, find out more about homeschooling especially uh, w- what is it about how does it work right can we afford something like that would we be able to give our children the right sort of uh, education at the time right at the time exactly mm-hmm. so I think we will get uh, some more clarification on this from our next uh, guest caller, which is uh, Dr. Richard Davies, who is a higher education research and development lead at the University of Central Lancashire. Uh, Dr. Davies, peace be upon you, and thank you very much for joining us, and welcome to The Drive Time Show. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Um, Dr. Davies, in, in your review of home education, uh, you have argued that um, learning Outcomes in schools have made knowledge a very specific purpose of um, education. Would you say that alone, uh, that alone helps us lead a sort of good life? Um, well, I think in, in the paper and the work that I've done, I think you could uh, look at it in two ways. One is, uh, and critical at times of what happens in school, but also critical of the idea of school in the first place and the way school is done, uh, particularly in England uh, at the moment. And one of the problems. I uh, continue to come back to is that where we start with learning objectives, things that can be clearly stated that pupils need to know and often what they uh, need to understand, it means it shapes the kind of experience that uh, children have and doesn't really prepare them for life in general. Um, And so in terms of things like the good life, I've argued that the the whole point of uh, education is part of bringing up children and uh, that the purpose is that children can come to uh, understand and live a life they want to lead and have the resources or the ability to get the resources to lead that kind of life. So if they want to be uh, a doctor, if they want to be a tennis player, whatever they want to do, a cricketer, whatever, um, that they uh, have, uh, that's their decision. That's what they want to do in terms of the kind of life they want to lead. And that uh, they need to be provided with the kinds of skills and knowledges they need to do and we start from that point of view from what it means to live a really good and flourishing life and then think about what children need in order to be able to pursue that and school rather sets that up as a set of learning objectives that we think children uh, will need to know rather than starting with actually trying to bring our children up in the right kind of way uh, creative critical thoughtful collaborative those kind of things that 
are those teachers in schools will often try and promote those kind of things. Mm. Uh, they're not built into the into the curriculum as being centrally important. It's about knowing certain things and knowing certain subjects, you know, sciences, uh, maths, um, rather than uh, some more of the art subjects. Uh, but also, as I've argued elsewhere, is that if we set a learning objective up that's about learning to read, sometimes we miss the really important thing, which is uh, learning to have a love of reading. It seems to be something slightly different, and yeah. I want children to have a, a love of reading, not just knowing how to read. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. um, Dr. Davies, in, in the past, people used to refer to a domestic education. Um, how was that different to homeschooling we see today? Okay, I mean, I think historians largely talk about domestic education. I suspect in, in the past, most people didn't really have a, a direct name for it in that kind of way. And nowadays, we talk about homeschooling. We talk about home education. We even talk about unschooling um, uh, in some places. Um, and part of that is that homeschooling, uh, often used in in Uh, America and other parts of the world that follow that more American system where school is essentially done in the home as opposed to uh, done in another separate institution but where children will often follow a curriculum and uh, serious sets of lessons. Home education as we use it in the UK uh, tends to mean lots of different things from people who start very much with what's often talked about as autonomous learning or starts with interest in the play that children doing, that they're curious and inquiring about the world and that the parent, the educator, will come along and help them to understand those particular interests, to take that curiosity a bit further, to help with their investigation of the world, so that in home education, that kind of autonomous learning or child-led learning is important. But also, you know, for some home educating families, they will use a very particular curriculum, they'll use workbooks, and they'll set aside time for particularly for, for education during the day. So it does vary in terms of uh, what goes on in terms of everyday practice in the UK today, and England particularly today. Um, I think in, in the past, there are obviously uh, close relationships, but also in the past, uh, you had to have a certain uh, amount of resource to do domestic education or education at home. And I think that's very much the same today i mean in, in domestic education in some of the work a, a lot of the emphasis was upon middle and upper class children who were receiving education at home and i think something of the same can be said today you have to have resources to be able to be able to go and educate your child at home and also to pay for the resources often to, to be able to do that which normally would be covered by the school so domestic education uh, i think we've moved towards uh, just, in a sense, education at home, uh, which would about being able to take up the roles and responsibilities you will have in adult life. So now I think home education and home schooling in the UK today is very broad, but is focused particularly more on the child and the child's interest and developing the child's interest through uh, visits, uh, collective social activity, but also sometimes just working alone in the house, just uh, working with an educator, parent, uh, talking through ideas, using books, the internet. Uh, and obviously these days computers and the internet uh, have opened up the possible resources to educate at home. Right. And would you say that children are being over-tested? Like, is, is there too many assessments? 
Um, I, I think I would say that the, the answer is probably yes. The short answer is yes. I think we need to distinguish between assessments that are useful hmm. to the child and to their learning and uh, uh, assessments that are pretty much there just to keep the school or, or the school system uh, ticking over. So we want to make a difference between assessment uh, assessment for learning, so doing things that uh, support uh, uh, children to know uh, how well they understand the topic and be able to, to set out plans to be able to go further. And I think we use that in home education as well in terms of one of the great things about uh, home education is you're working with a much smaller group. You know the people you're, you're working with because they're your children um, or they're friends of your children. And um, you are always making assessments about how how well they're doing and you're asking them to do things potentially with you to be able to work out do they really understand what I'm talking about difficulty comes when these become high pressure exams and that they really start to mean something so that all the time children are worried about their lives are being uh, crippled by the prospect of high stakes assessment and I think that for me is, is, is more of the issue it's not so much the number of assessments it's about the high stakes of it and the impact that have on children's lives in terms of them continually worrying about whether or not they'll do well at the next stage or dropping out completely and just giving up and deciding the pressure is too much and just deciding they're not going to engage with school or the um, uh, the testing system. Right. And would you say that one of the problems of uh, home education is that it can be isolating? So are they tools but whether online or other systems in place to reduce this yeah i mean i think this is more of a, a perceived problem i think if, if we really thought that children i mean and this is uh, from a home educating perspective as much as any uh, general uh, social perspective if we really thought that children were isolated then that would be a matter of concern we we should be at least concerned if not worried about it um but in most home education contexts children are meeting up quite regularly, both in terms of things that go on outside the home normally, um, uh, faith communities, um, uh, arts clubs, dance clubs, those kind of things um, going on where they're meeting up with other people who are going to school and not going to school, but also the home education community in most places has a whole range of social activities where they meet up together to learn together, uh, to do other things together. So it's, it's rare that home education is uh, really isolating. In fact, home education is probably the wrong word uh, because it, it implies that it goes on in the, in the home all the time, whereas actually in my experience it goes on in a whole range of community settings. But clearly one of the great things about online tools is it does open up the world to um, children and young people to be able to engage with different groups of people in different kind of places. Um, you can use um, VR technology and just the internet to be able to see uh, different parts of the world that you might never go to visit. You can use um, internet to be able to have uh, um, conversations uh, with people in different countries. So there's always that uh, possibility that the, the online tools can enhance the education experiences of uh, children and young people, whether at school or not. Uh, but I think um, in terms of the isolation, I, I, I think that's probably more of a perceived problem than it is uh, a real problem uh, for, for, for people, though um, uh, we all now, I suspect, use video conferencing uh, and chat 
uh, rooms and etc to be able to communicate with family and friends and uh, children home education settings are using that to uh, talk to their wider group of friends who they meet socially but are then able to continue those conversations on using the online resources thank you very much for your insight there dr davies was uh, really insightful yeah, thank you very much have a great rest of your day zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight we were just speaking to Dr. Richard Davies, who is a higher education research and development lead at the University of Central Lancashire. What did you think of that? Um, a different approach. Right. Like I, I, I think it's really interesting because he, he answered the question about isolation. I think that's probably one of the biggest fears of any parent um, of homeschooling. I think that plus the fact that the time the amount of investment, I think, as you mentioned, that, you know, the schools provide resources that that we would have to pay for ourselves to isolate. But then, you know, as you mentioned about this, the spiritual side, that that could be something that you could also have an emphasis on, as, you know, as I'm sure you experienced when you, you studied as well, right, mm-hmm. that um, you could use um, some of the principles of Islam to kind of, uh, structure the day right like yeah. with prayer time yeah. um, it's a great time to be like hey you know we work from the could you like elaborate a little bit on like what type of structure that could potentially be yes or, or you've experienced? Um, well that would obviously allow parents to shape a day for their children according to their religious needs as mm. well as um, their educational needs right yeah um, you, as you rightly mentioned, starting off with the morning prayer, mm. which is the Fajr prayer in Islam, right? And then maybe take a break at the Zuhr time, which is offered around noon. Mm. And then just um, going forward, you you shape the day accordingly. So yeah, that that is something that can be done. Definitely. I think many parents actually worry about their children not being able to offer. <coughs> sorry not being able to offer their prayers on time because they either are, are stuck in, in, in lectures or, or in class yeah. or they just don't have the right sort of facilities to be able to offer their prayers in peace. So yes, that's obviously something um, that would be positive. But then I also know children that have made sure that they can offer their prayers at their schools um, and the schools have always been very kind enough and cooperative in this sense that they do allow some sort of room for such children to um, offer their prayers in in the breaks. Yeah. Right. Again, not not very um, uh, easy to arrange, but still something that that can be done in the current situation at least. But then with homeschooling, obviously, that's something that uh, would be positive in order to help their spirituality as well. Definitely. I think that um, what I really think was important as well about uh, what Dr. Richard Davies was talking about when he spoke about the type of assessment, I do think that there are some assessments just for the sake of assessments and just because the way it was. And there are assessments that actually help test whether you learnt what you wanted to learn and what the learning outcomes were. So, again, I just think that 
Personally, homeschooling is looking really appealing. I think that there there are many benefits. You know, we, we were talking about it just before we did the guest. Mm-hmm. Um, that the content, right? They, you know, ultimately you want to bring up your children uh, in a certain way. Everybody has their own, you know, belief systems, etc. And I think that that's where content in schools can be a bit. Um, it can be a bit difficult or not in line with what you believe or what you believe is appropriate at a certain time. Mm-hmm. I think that then that way you, as your as a parent, are able to expose your child to the certain uh, topics that you think are supposed to be discussed at certain dif- uh, ages. <clears throat> so I think that's definitely um, a an advantage. And another one, um, which I think is... Uh, one that I kind of touched upon when I was talking about the, the behavioral issues uh, or the the discipline is is bullying, right? Mm, because yeah. bullying has um, it's gone from a, a physical like you know being beaten up in schools to um, following you home on social media um, yeah. and like you know through through phones, um, and I think that there is where children are having essentially living their lives online you know for school a lot of the times you know schools can't stay behind and stick to books and paper right yeah. they have to adapt so children need technology and then they will be better placed having used that technology but it's there's this there's a lot of safety that needs to be done because bullying can become a serious issue um for children um, where you know one in four children reported that some bullying between the age of seven to fifteen year olds um according to one study and um which can have very lo- like they can have lasting mental health issues as well right yep exactly um as we've seen uh, depicted in um documentaries etc mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the holy prophet uh, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Um, has said that for him who follows a path for seeking knowledge, Allah will ease for him the way to paradise. Again, emphasizing on the fact that Islam has always been uh, promoting the the education and, yeah. and, and gaining of knowledge. Um, as Again, as I said earlier, the people may think that when it comes to religion, religion only talks about the spiritual side of things, which is absolutely not true because a complete religion will always cater for all aspects of life, yeah. not just the spiritual side of things. His Holiness, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, peace be upon him, the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community and the promised Messiah, promoted it as a way to fight bad religious practice and he stated that I consider those Muslim clerics who oppose the acquisition of knowledge in the modern sciences to be in the wrong for in doing so they seek the veiled their own error and weakness right for in doing so they seek to veil their own error and weakness so any scholar any religious scholar that tries to tell you that secular knowledge doesn't have a place in Islam is most likely because they don't have secular knowledge of their own. And they just are trying to sort of hide themselves behind this fake 
um, concept of Islam, which is misleading and uh, is not helpful at all. Mm. So this is something uh, that has shown that the Islam has always defended and promoted um, education, but it doesn't uh, specify how this knowledge or learning should be acquired. And if you feel schools are in the right setting or for, for, for building that sort of models of righteousness, this is something we, t- we talked about earlier at the beginning as well, then you could potentially try homeschooling. Yeah. Again, there are questions about this and uh, there are probably some people um, that are sort of against this, but something will have to change, whether it is in the current schooling system. Another um, interesting thing is also unschooling. Right. Right. This is an alternative um, sort of setup, uh, also known as the uh, autonomous learning or self-directed learning, which started actually in the 1970s in the USA. That that puts what the child is curious about at the center of learning, um, which is also known as a respectful partnership. Um, so using this approach the UK Unschooling Network told Parliament that unschooled young young learn from older folk through example and conversation and the older people learned about nurturing younger folk. So that's something um, that is new, that is different. And that's also something that I think although it said that it started in the 1970s, it reminds me of, of many um, narrations and, and, and um, anecdotes that I have read in really old books yeah. where the younger folk were actually just sitting down with the oldest and just listening to them, yeah. right? And they shaped their own thoughts and their lives accordingly. Right. So that's, again, another way of learning because... Maybe in in recent times, it seems as though the only one that can teach me something is a teacher, a professor, um, someone who holds a specific PhD in a specific field. But there is so much more we can learn from the common people around us by way of looking at them, by way just the the way they behave, the way they speak. I mean, you will see some people... That in in the face of of hardship, they just remain so calm and composed, right? Mm. Now that's something schools are not really teaching you as such. Yeah, and I think that um, it's um, please correct me if I'm wrong. This hadith where it says a Muslim is a mirror of another Muslim, right? Yes, in a relation of the Prophet. Yes, and that that like speaks to me that like I I like this idea of unschooling because it's kind of like you see examples and you learn from them, mm, right? Mm. And it just helps everybody be better. Like for me, I've always found that if I'm in a situation of leadership, I feel like I step up another level because I'm like, you know what? I'm responsible for these people. I need to be better than I usually am. And mm. I think that that like, you know, when you, when it's just about yourself, you, you're like, I'm not that bothered, right? Mm-hmm. But when you have that responsibility. So I think that this idea of unschooling where the interests of of the child are kind of um like they they learn through through speaking to elders yeah and you know islam also teaches respect for elders as well right mm. and i think that 
as much as I think that this this is happening with a lot of new parents as well, mm. um, where they're looking to Google to find the answer to how to parent and how to do these things yes. when yes. you know children have been around for centuries and <laughs> yes. pa- our parents have yeah. have done things. And I'm not saying that oh you should only stick to the old ways. Like yeah, I learn, but I mm. think that there's some people who are like no, I'm going to stick with the old way. And there's some people that I'm going to stick with the new way. I feel like it's find the best of both and yes. see what works for yes. you, right? And I think that, um, yeah, um, for me that that's where I think maybe there's there's a there's a middle way here as well, um, where you know, I because I've seen a lot of uh, children grow up with a lot of um, spirituality and extra religious knowledge, but that's come through dedication of parents especially mm. mothers who have taken the time to teach their child after school mm. right mm. so they've gone they've had their secular education and they've come back and they've had their religious education you know, there's various institutions that teach whether it's uh, languages whether it's um, religious knowledge from different faiths that, that are taught mm. and I think that there is a way to, for both but then yeah I think that I, I think that the, there's two th- main things that um, are probably making people reluctant to to send children to school is bullying and content. I think those were probably the biggest factors. Mm. But then I think it's a massive responsibility to to take yes, on absolutely. the homeschool. I mean, in no way are we saying that that schools are bad or yeah. schools should be just closed down. Because if you ask me on on a personal level, I would probably be still going towards the the school system yeah. because I mean we, we've been brought up a certain way maybe because it worked out for me so yeah. it's a, sort of a personal thing as well but there are obviously also downsides to homeschooling and, yeah. and, and unschooling which obviously we would be talking we're not about pro, we're not pro homeschooling here I just, yeah. I'm just trying to get into the kind of like idea of like why would someone make that decision because it's not an easy decision right it's yeah. a it's a very you know, it's a commitment. It's a financial and time commitment. Two things that are, are often scarce. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, um, if we look at the downsides of to to homeschooling or unschooling, there is, for for example, um, those are not funded, so it could be expensive. Right. So getting all the necessary equipment, the books, the the, the syllabus, the the right sort of atmosphere. Because you see, the the classrooms we have at school have, have also a certain arrangement, <clears throat> yeah, the, and which which make it easier for for children to to learn because there is a certain uh, atmosphere. Now, to create that at home could be expensive, uh, could be not even doable for m- most of the people here in the UK. Um, it is time consuming. Uh, parents become teachers; they may not be able to afford to do that because they've got their own jobs as well at the same time. Um, socially isolating is obviously an issue which which, which we did uh, speak about earlier as well. Positive outcomes are not guaranteed. Um, I feel like we don't have enough research or analysis into the outcome of this, right? So it it sort of remains an idea which 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 seems very nice, but um, do we actually see the outcome is is a big question. So, <clears throat> um, unschooled uh, children, for example, one of them said, I actively disagree with unschooling because I believe that it is a very easy way 
for unwell parents to bring their children up without needing to actively participate or integrate into society. Uh, she wasn't helped to develop but hindered by her parents rather. Yeah. So when we speak about bullying and all of that, there is also the the flip side where a child says, look, my education or, or, or my progress has been hindered by my own parents. Yeah. So how do we decide that the parents are actually fit to educate the children at home as well? Yeah. So I feel like maybe then there is a, um, well, how teachers go through training, then there should be certain requirements of the parent to go through to be able to homeschool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like that, is that there? I don't know. Maybe I feel like that it, it's something that would need because, you know, as this um, the child you quoted uh, said, the, some parents may not be fit for it, right? Yeah. And um, I think we'll, we'll go to that afterwards um, and we'll discuss that in a bit more detail after our uh, next guest um who is um, Professor Gray, Professor Preeta Gray, who uh, is a research professor, psychology and neuroscience um, from the Boston College and author of Free to Learn. Assalamu alaikum, peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome to the Drive Time Show, Professor. Yeah, hello. Thank you for um, spending some time with us to discuss this um, interesting topic. Um, you've looked into uh, autonomous learning in your work, free to learn, uh, arguing that children should direct their own learning. Could you explain how that would work practically in a home setting, like, and, and give us like a bit of an overview into it? Sure. Um, so, in the home setting, uh, children's self-directed education is commonly called unschooling. Uh, This is a situation where the parents do not impose a curriculum on the child, but uh, instead help the child pursue the child's own interests. Um, In this kind of education, the parent's job is not to force learning on the child, but to provide opportunities for learning. Uh, to provide an environment that is conducive to the child's exploration and play, which are the ways that children primarily learn, especially when they're young, uh, and to support the child's own interests. The assumption here is is that children learn best when they are learning what they want to learn in the ways that they want to learn at the time that they want to learn. And so that's a very quick overview of, uh, of what unschooling is. Now, uh, Professor, you have claimed that schools are designed to indoctrinate and not educate. Could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, you probably got that from an article that I wrote on the history of schooling. Um, in that article, I pointed out that the original schools that were the of the schools that we have today uh, were developed during the Protestant Reformation uh, explicitly for the purpose of obedience training and biblical indoctrination. Since then, the curriculum has changed in schools. Uh, It's no longer biblical indoctrination, but the method of teaching has not changed. The method of teaching is still that 
primarily of presenting information to the child and expecting the child to make that information and feed it back. That really is the method of indoctrination. This is not a method for promoting critical thinking or creative thinking or deep understanding. So in that sense, um, even though we're not in, in the secular schools teaching biblical doctrine, we're teaching information as if it were doctrine, as if it's something to memorize instead of something to think about. Right. So, um, Professor, how important is um, play in developing self-reliance? It is really crucially important. Children, by nature, want to play. Uh, why? Why did, in the course of natural selection, children develop this strong drive to play? It's because play, by definition, is activity in which children initiate and direct themselves. Play is initiated and directed by the children themselves. So play is how children learn to plan and direct their own activities. During much of the rest of their lives, they're directed by adults. They're protected by adults. But when they're playing, they figure out things themselves. They've got to solve their own problems. And so it's in play that children learn how to do those things. That's basically learning self-reliance. Right. And with, uh, with children directing what they want to learn, I feel like maybe some parents may be concerned about losing their authority if they were to let the child decide what they learn. What, what reassurances can you give them with this method? Yes. I, in, in my studies of uh, unschooling families, um, I don't see any evidence of the parents losing authority. Hmm. In fact, uh, my experience is that when parents respect and trust their children, uh, the children tend to respect and trust their parents in return. When parents don't give too much unsolicited advice, they're not always hovering over the child telling the child what to do, then children are all the more likely to uh, approach their parents and ask for advice in situations where they really need advice. So I don't think there's any con reasonable reason to believe that parents will lose authority. It's also the case that there are certain kinds of authority that uh, parents naturally maintain. It's the parent's job, really, to be ultimately take care of the safety of the child, to be a moral guide for the child. I also think that parents should not hesitate to share their own thoughts and opinions with their children, not as dogma, but as ideas for the child to think about. And so um, children, parents really are kind of naturally authority figures to their children, and they don't lose that sense that authority by virtue of allowing the children to pursue their own interests as their way of learning. Right, and self-directed model of, of learning has been applied in schools, right? So could you share some insight into unsuccessful or successful um, application of this in schools specifically? So I have uh, studied um, a number of schools that are designed for self-directed education. So these are schools, the typical school designed for self-directed education might be called a democratic school. There's a 
set of learning centers called Agile Learning Centers, which are essentially schools. The way these work is that there are children there that during the typical school day, uh, typically from all the way from age four on through the teenage years. They're not segregated from one another. They can interact across ages. They're not uh, provided with any enforced curriculum. Uh, they are permitted to explore and play and pursue their own interests in this environment that has many learning opportunities and many other kids as well as adults to engage in the activities that you're learning from. Uh, that's basically the way they operate in the schools that democratic schools that I've looked at, also the rules are made democratically. The students as well as the staff members there each have one vote on making the rules of the school. Um, and there's no testing, there's no forced curriculum. And my observation studying the graduates of such schools is that they're doing very well out there in the world. They go on to whatever careers they they wish, apparently, they've gone on to the whole whole range of careers that are valued in our culture. Uh, so that's basically the, the way it works. I, I think that um, it works even better if it, when it's possible in a, in a school than in separately in a home because the school can provide so many playmates to play with, so many people to learn from, uh, oftentimes richer learning opportunities that might be available in the typical home. That's not to denigrate a home based on schooling, but simply to say that in my observations, um, it works for more families if you can send your child to a democratic school or a learning center. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That is uh, very interesting, and I think that's something needs to be looked at uh, largely from the government's perspective as well. Um, Professor Gray, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, very uh, insightful and a pleasure speaking with you. And I wish you a lovely day ahead. Peace be upon you. Thank you. And uh, you have a lovely day. Thank you. So we were just speaking with uh, Professor Peter Gray, who is the research professor of psychology and neuroscience at Boston College. And he's also the author of uh, free to learn zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is um, the number to call us on we did also ask you a question on our social media poll and uh, the question was what are your thoughts on homeschooling 21 percent said it's a good idea 14 percent one four said it's a bad idea 11 percent say i am unsure and uh, a heavy amount, 54% say it's okay for some. So I, I believe there is still question marks around uh, this whole concept of homeschooling. But maybe if schools could inculcate, as Professor Gray was mentioning, um, some of these ideas, some of these concepts, we may be looking at a better and brighter future. Yeah, I think that there's obviously clear advantages and disadvantages to both and I think that um, education ultimately is a priority and I think that um, yes is there are there changes needed are there things that could be better um, 
if you have the capacity to homeschool, I'm sure that there are a lot of advantages as well. But ultimately, when we look at the Islamic perspective, um, pursuit of knowledge is important, right? And mm-hmm. I think that that is key. And yes, um, maybe it would be better if schools taught things like um, how to do your taxes or how to apply for a mortgage, etc. Mm-hmm. But we find that you want to do what's best for your child mm-hmm. and that will ultimately be down to you you know best and you have a host of options available yep. to you at yep. the moment and so it's i actively encourage any parent to think about these options to think what's best for their child and to make a decision based on the wealth of knowledge that we've shared today and that's available Absolutely. anywhere online that reminds me of something uh, the second caliph of the Ahmadi community said um, and he explained that if you want your children to grow into good adults then use your home as a kind of segregation camp so keep your children away from everything except good influences this is the only way to safeguard the future generations yeah Similarly, the current uh, leader, the current caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Masur Ahmed, uh, may Allah be his help, has uh, elaborated uh, on this in answer to a question, how can we guide young children who are being taught many un-Islamic and confusing concepts at school, yeah. something we spoke about earlier as well. Mm-hmm. So he pointed out that out of 365 days of the year, children go to school for 170 or 180 days. Yeah. In the remaining time, they are in the home with parents, he also said parents should befriend their children, interact with them, ask them what they have learned in school and answer all their questions using Islamic principles. That's something he said on the 16th June 23 uh, and it is on This Week with Hazuri. So if you want to watch this on YouTube, go ahead. Actually, on that, there was um, some advice that um, His Holiness, um, the current caliph of the Abdiya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Mr. Ahmed, gave this week mm. um, or last week, I think it was, where specifically... Um, that fathers are um, should not uh, distance themselves from children uh, after they get to a certain age. Yes, yes. Um, and I thought that was really insightful because, you know, it's it, we need to keep that relationship so that there's that open level of communication, mm. especially with the way um, children have access to information online or, or there's the cyberbullying, etc. I think that having that in, that connection, that relationship with your child throughout their life not mm. to a certain level when they're a toddler when you can hug them and kiss them like you know it, you need to maintain that relationship and I think that that was really sound advice that was absolutely, provided absolutely uh, by his holiness. that is something uh, very relevant uh, to do today's needs as well and an aid when you want to educate your children is the Holy Quran the promised Messiah um, peace be upon him said the parts of virtue choked out by the Quran provide guidance on how to foster people of all types and of all intellectual ability. It provides methods to train people of all intellectual levels, whether an ignorant person, a scholar or a philosopher, and answers the questions of people from all classes. In short, methods to reform people from all walks of life have been provided in the Holy Quran. And I think that is 
the best uh, way for us to end this um, first hour here today. I hope you enjoyed this discussion and we also hope that you would join us on the other side of the news where we will be discussing another very interesting topics whether Jews and Arabs can live together or not. Are they allies or is it the opposite? So please do stay tuned and we will see you. Sorry, we will meet you. See you, meet you. Hear us. (laughs) You can can hear us after the news break. So please do stay tuned. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. In the name of Allah, the most gracious ever. Alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome back to the second hour of the Drive Time Show uh, at Voice of Islam Radio. You are joined by myself, Salman, and my brothers, Rahil and Fahim. Yeah. Assalamu alaikum. Rahil, how are you doing today? I'm doing, alhamdulillah, I'm doing very well. Good to see you too. Yeah. Good to see you as special, well. A special one today because there's three of us. Yeah, uh, we, we, we we don't get this very often, do yeah. we? So, we, as promised, we are going to be discussing about Jews and Arabs. Uh, they are not adversaries, they are allies. And uh, this is not just something we claim, but we will also have great guest callers coming in today from various walks of life. And they will be giving us insight into this whole issue. And obviously, this is a very relevant uh, topic with what's been going on. Um, for the past maybe three months now, two and a half, three months. So all eyes, as we know, are currently on the Middle East. Or since 47. Yes. (laughs) Very right. And that's something that needed to be said. Jazakallah. Thank you for that. So all eyes are currently on the Middle East while the Israeli attacks on Gaza continue. In the past months, we have seen large crowds taking to the streets protesting Israel's war on Gaza. The media was often very quick to label the protests and Palestine solidarity in general as anti-Semitic. Yet we see so many Jewish organizations at the forefront of many of these protests. So we have seen Jews really across the globe, whether it's the USA, it's Canada, uh, here in Europe or anywhere else in the world. They have really come forward to say that, look, this is not anti-Semitic. Right. Yeah. This is about human lives. This is about justice, about peace and about really being fair to each and every one of us. So today we want to talk about Jewish Arab solidarity and also really clear up some um, misconceptions about anti-Semitism among Arabs and Muslims. 
So most Palestinians are Muslims, but all, of course uh, not all. So also you can be Arab and Jewish at the same time, right? Obviously mm-hmm. Jews were living in the Middle East before the creation of Israel, but it is difficult to talk about this topic without conflating the terms here and there. So there is a good chance we will, although we'll try to avoid that as much as we can. Yeah, and so I think that it's just so easy. I think that people just like push on this stereotype that you know Jews and Muslims are at war with each other. Like yeah. I understand that there there is like a political backdrop to this, but when you're looking at as 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 a Jewish person and a Muslim person, like we we can I'm sure you you both can uh, give better examples than me, yeah. but. Um, even the time of the Holy Prophet, uh, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, yeah. um, you know, Jews and Muslims <coughs> spend m- much time in harmony, right? Like there's yeah. there's not this like religious instruction that you must not like the other religion, mm-hmm. right? Neither mm-hmm. religion is saying that, and no. I think that that's where it's just it's it's sad that that's being used as like a Oh, just because you're Jew and you're a Jew and I'm a Muslim, uh, what's it called? We should be, at, you know, difference. You see, yeah. religion seems the easiest cover-up story for yeah. everything you want to pull in this yeah. world, right? You can really pull anything you want, cover it up with your religion, and you're good to go. Yeah, and it's just it's sad, and I think that that's why it's important to discuss with the guests that we have today. You know, this topic today as well. Yeah. Um, it's important to understand that is is this a reality or is this something that is being conflated by? I'm sorry to say, the media. I, I think Rahil, if if you want to tell us in maybe the next two three minutes. Yeah, I mean, as far as um, you know, the region of Islam is concerned, we're very much clear that um, um, you know the very term. Ahlul Kitab, you know, yeah. the people of the book, the Quran yeah. refers to them, and 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 the historical context, you know, from the t- time of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him, to the time of uh, you know Hazrat Umar, uh, you know, the the second Caliph of Islam, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how he treated the Jews and how, uh, you know, you know, throughout history we know that the treatment of the Jewish communities ha- has varied across you know different regions and under different rulers, yeah. and 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 we also know that while Christian Europe faced periods of persecution, such as in famous. Spanish Inquisition, uh, you know, Jews actually founded, uh, they, they, they found a haven, you know, a place of tolerance under Islamic rule. Yeah. This is also part of history that needs to be discussed and, you know, have to be, uh, you know, uh, told. Mm-hmm. So so I think all of that, of course, we'll be just discussing and ask, asking our, um, you know, our guests, our special guests that will be coming here. Mm-hmm. But just a brief example of toleration under the Islamic rule. Um, you know, we know very well that Islamic societies historically, of course, they were, you know, history is not something that's... Um, you know, there are nuances to that discussion. Yeah. But Islamic societies, you know, overall, you see historically exhibited a remarkable level of tolerance, yeah. you know, towards religious, religious minorities, including, you know, the Jews. And this can be attributed to, again, you know, the, the Quranic principles and the principles that were established by the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And that's why we see uh, that particularly at, at the time of Hazrat Umar during the 7th century, uh, he demonstrated an inclusive and compassionate, you know, you know approach towards Jews living in Palestine where he allowed them the first time after they were you know, driven out to come back in, whereas there was a condition by the Christians that would, they would not be allowed back in. Mm. So, so the, you know, all of this history and this historical context uh, contest has to be discussed. But from here, from Voice of Islam and from the perspective of uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, yes, the Jews and the Muslims you know, have lived together. The Arabs and the Jews have lived together 
for centuries. Yes. You know, with uh, you know, with there's always problems. There's always going to be problems. But Love historically speaking, for none, right? yeah, I mean, it's, people it's, have lived. They have lived together. So I think right now, what we're seeing post seventh, you know, um, October, October, the attacks. Uh, how, as you were saying, how religion can be used, you know, to, you know, the, 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 to negative, to negatively, you know, portray, mm. you know, two different to uh, change the narrative, you know, right? Of society. It's, it's using religion to change the narrative of what is actually happening. And exactly. I think that, yeah, it's often used as a scapegoat, and it's it's sad, like because when you look at the root of any religion yeah. and its basic values, they're always peace, because yeah. it's come from God, who is the most gracious ever merciful and, yeah. and the thing is is that I think that it's sad and that people will always use that and you know it's it's just like a it's the oldest trick in the book isn't yeah, it yeah it's right. the oldest trick in the book yet human beings somehow manage to fall for it every mm-hmm. single time Mm. This is what bothers me so much. Yeah. How can you be falling for, for for the same trick now? Now, especially in in times of social media, yeah. where you are being given live reports about everything, yeah. not, not just from news outlets, yeah. but also from the common man that is really there on yeah. the ground. Mm-hmm. How can you still believe this whole uh, cover up story of yeah. of religion being behind this? Right. Mm-hmm. This is something that really bothers me. Is it that we as humans don't want to understand, or it, or are we uh, sort of willingly pretending to mm-hmm. not understand this this this, this whole facade that, that that has been created. Right? I think it's a bit of both. Yeah. If you really think think about it, um, a lot is to do with the narratives that we're seeing. Yeah. For instance, the people and, and the the way the algorithms work as well online is is it, it is it is most likely to show you things that you are most interested in or you interact with or your view your yeah. viewpoint. Yeah. So it's whether it's X or you know whatever platform yeah. it is. So if someone who's an Israeli and he's seeing the atrocities of Hamas and, and 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 based on that content that he has viewed, the only content that he's seeing is that. Yes. Right? Yes. It produces an echo chamber. Yeah. Echo chamber. And, and and so this is why what you're saying is absolutely right. But I think this is where we need to step back, zoom out and see the entire yeah. you know, and, and have this open discussion hmm. uh, you know, about this issue at hand. And of course, you know, state openly you know what is wrong is wrong whoever mm. commits it whoever does it yes. if, and this is the principle of Islam irrespective of religion color and whatever you know um, based, yeah it's based on your actions that God's going to judge you so this is this is the most important message that we, we want to give good that you mention Islam because we will now be speaking with our first guest caller who is a, a, a Muslim is a missionary of the Avenue Muslim community in Kababir Haifa so he's mm. there on the ground Imam uh, Imam Duddin Al-Masri Assalamu Alaikum peace be upon you and welcome to the drive time show Thank you very much for, for, for being with us today. Um, so, so since it often comes up, can you clear up the question for us whether there is any basis for anti-Semitism in Islam? First of all, we have the example of the Holy Prophet When the Holy Prophet came to Al-Madina, he found Jewish tribes. And when he died, his shield was left as a trust with a Jewish family. If he, if there are bases for anti-Semitism or atrocities against Jews in Islam, then how these Jews were left, and there were some even trading uh, exchanges between the Muslims. Mm-hmm. Uh, on, on the other hand, the history of Muslims and uh, Jews is full of coexistence and peace. I can say, and I can guarantee that Jews lived their best life under the Islamic rule. We have a lot of examples of personalities 
that lived under uh, Jewish personalities, <coughs> actually bright and brilliant ex- uh, personalities that lived under the Islamic rule. These names wouldn't have shone like this in a country where there is oppression or under a, an uh, aggressive uh, rule or if there were bases of anti-Semitism or uh, aggression or any oppression of it, of any kind against any non-Muslim. Rather, the Holy Prophet Sallallahu when he came to Al-Madinah, he made something called Ahdul Ummah, the uh, constitution of Al-Ummah or the nation, okay, or the <laughs> treaty of uh, Al-Ummah. Mm-hmm. And it's called also Treaty of Al-Madinah. Yes. If we look to that treaty, we will find more than 30 points that show what are the rights of different people that live under this new country or new government that was headed by the Holy Prophet We will find out that all Jews were given similar rights to those Muslim citizens of that country. Uh, Imam Mahmoudin, are you still with us? I think we're having an issue with the line. We will probably try and reconnect uh, with him as soon as we can. Um, in the meanwhile, so what, what is Imam Mahmoudin, uh, uh, sorry, was saying is um, really what we were emphasizing as well, uh, which is that there is no basis in in this islamic teaching mm. for uh, anti-semitism and uh, as as uh, imam imaduddin was mentioning rightly it is the example of the prophet muhammad peace and blessings of allah be upon him when he migrated to medina when he had the power when he could do anything he wanted yeah. he chose to be Graceful to these people, yep. right? I think we have uh, Imam Imaduddin with us uh, again. Uh, are you with us, uh, Imam Imaduddin? Yes, yes, I'm. Uh, I'm with you again. <laughs> oh, Jazakallah. Thank you uh, for 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 reconnecting. Um, in uh, October, the Ahmadiyya Mosque in Haifa hosted an event by an organization called uh, Standing Together. Can you share some of the activities and efforts of Jews and Arabs working? towards peace within um, Israel and Palestine? Yes, for sure. I have uh, written an article about all of our activities that we held uh, since the 7th of October until now. We actually didn't hold only one or uh, hosted one event by Standing Together Movement. That's only one uh, event of five events that we held as our most. In the beginning, when we saw what is happening, we immediately recognized and uh, knew under the leadership of the Amir Muhammad Sharif <coughs> that there is a lot of hatred that will spread. We are uh, neighbors of Jews. Mm-hmm. We have lived here for 80 years together. Yep. Even before that, we have been here for 150 years and 200 years. Yeah. Uh, and we never shown. We have never shown anything like uh, anti-Semitism or hatred towards our neighbors. Mm-hmm. Even when the war was there. The innocent people didn't have any uh, hatred from our side. But even though when uh, one uh, neighbor wanted to buy an aquarium from uh, uh, one of the Ahmadi brothers, 
And because he's speaking Hebrew to them, so his uh, little girl, the neighbor's little uh, daughter, thought that he is a Jew. So mm-hmm. she said, uh, I didn't know that there are Jews living here. I thought only terrorists live here. Mm-hmm. This shows the bad propaganda that was uh, propagated and spread around. Mm-hmm. So we immediately <clears throat> to stand up. We have to do something. We have to call our friends. We have to call all of these just uh, Jews, uh, our uh, friends from all religions, and we have to do something to stop this hatred, and we have to spread the real teachings of Islam. So we called the Druze neighbors, the Jews, the Christians, all the leaders of all religions, Mm. please come, let us stand together, let's have a strong stand. Then we called our neighbors, then we allowed the Standing Together movement to come and uh, uh, hold their event at our mosque. And we had another two or three events to defend the rights of people to express their opinion. Because yeah. even if there is war, people should, should have this uh, freedom of expression to show their sadness. Because those who are killed, there are many innocent people that are killed among them. Mm-hmm. So if they don't show their sadness, if they don't express their opinion, then uh, it's, it's not correct. Wonderful. Uh, brother, brother Imad al-Din, I, I, I had a you know, particular question with regards to uh, these events that were being held in, you know, in the Ahmadiyya Mosque in Haifa, which was wonderfully celebrated around the world by various, I think, other news outlets as well as or something. But there was some yeah. negative uh, tone on, on, let's say, Twitter and else from our non ahmadi some of our non ahmadi mm. brothers you know who mm. who always see everything in you know sometimes they see i, I don't say all of them but uh, you know those who are anti ahmadi see this in a sort of a negative light so i wanted to you're living there you 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 know you observe this day in day out this interaction that you have with the jewish community you mentioned something with regards to anti-semitism look you're living under that rule now so 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 of course there could be some repercussions for doing anti-semitism you gave beautiful examples from the time when they were living under the Islamic rule. This mm. is where you, you know, where the Muslims were the rulers. Yeah. So this is where, where they showed these, you know, beautiful yeah. examples. So what would you no, say to these, these, what would you say guys, to these Muslims, these these Muslims who are anti, you know, who, who are anti Hamadis and they see this in a negative light? They are not, not, not only Muslims. I, I say that these are social media warriors. Mm-hmm. They are just behind the screen shouting at this and shouting at that and they are saying to this infidel and this disbeliever, mm-hmm. you come and go ahead and show us what you can do. Mm. We are not hypocrites. Mm. We do what we believe. We don't believe something and do something else. We don't believe that uh, UK is our enemy and live under the rule of UK and take benefits from UK and talk <laughs> and take, uh, uh, what is it called? I mean, insurance from uh, the government that we believe that they are our enemy. Mm-hmm. We don't have anything hidden in our heart. Mm-hmm. If you are true believers, you have to show what you believe. We are like this. We believe that whoever is the ruler that lives uh, and that rules the country that we are living in, yeah. we are not allowed to betray that. We are not allowed to, to betray the people. If we, want, if we believe that they are our enemies, we will go and join one army and fight with them. This is the thing that we do. We, we don't sh- show what we don't believe. Yeah. So they should stand uh, and tell us what they believe. Uh, 
and then we will see the uh, bad things that they believe in, and then we will see how bad they are from inside. So if they want to talk, they have to do something about it, not stand behind. This is what Absolutely. what we do here. Mm-hmm. We want we we live and the and Israel for us for the Palestinians who live in Israel is a matter of fact. They mm-hmm. cannot change it now. They have they have been born into this uh, uh, situation and this condition. They have two uh, they have two options. Either they live with a, with two standards. One is inside their hearts, and one show uh, one that they show to the to the Jews. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the other option is to accept the matter of fact and start changing things from inside. Get the rights of their brothers. Express their uh, their uh, yeah. opinion. Try to convey the message to the decision makers. Who did more than the Ahmadiyya community? I can tell you now. The Arabs of uh, Israel, there are some politicians that are shouting, that are screaming, that are making noise, but they are not doing anything. Okay? Mm-hmm. It's only the Ahmadiyya Muslim community that has sent messages again, again and again to the decision makers. We made plenty of interviews with people. Come to, to the politicians from the far right to the far left. Come, let us stand. Let us protect the innocent people of Gaza. Mm-hmm. We have done this. What have you done there? Mm-hmm. You stood in the street. You <laughs> spoke on the TV. Thank you. But don't tell us that we are betrayers and uh, you you want us to follow what you believe, which is very bad, and we know what it is. Perfect. And from uh, here, I want to convey uh, a message to all Ahmadi brothers as well. Yes, yes, please go ahead. Yes, the the thing that I wanted to say is that yes, we are against every atrocity. We are against every crime that is committed against the innocent people of uh, Gaza or anywhere. But we shouldn't have two standards. The believer doesn't have two standards. Mm-hmm. So if these people are uh, legitimizing or allowing anti-Semitism in the name of defense of the innocent people, then they are committing another crime. We should know that there are there are good Jews. Our problem is not with Judaism or Jews. Our problem is with bad politicians. Jazakallah. May Allah bless you. Thank you so much for this wonderful message. Assalamu alaikum. Jazakallah. So we just uh, just spoke with the Imam Imaduddin, who is a missionary of the community, uh, originally from Jordan, studied <coughs> in the uh, Jamia Ahmadiyya in Ghana, and is now serving as a missionary of the community in Kababir in Haifa. Um, so yeah, the I think the message was 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 was, was pretty clear, um, very powerful, very powerful. That look, we I mean the, the the last thing he said, especially yeah. hit me. That look, we have no problem with Jews, we have no problem with anyone really, but we have a problem with bad and politicians with the wrong kind of agendas. And we will swiftly move on to our next guest caller, which is uh, Professor Haim Brashid Zabna. Please forgive me if I got the name wrong. He's part of an organization called Jewish Network for Palestine. He's also a filmmaker, photographer, and a film studies scholar. Uh, Professor Zabna, thank you very much for being with us. Peace be upon you and welcome to The Drive Time Show. Thank you. So, uh, Professor, could you tell us about your organization, uh, Jewish Network for Palestine. What What is the aim of it and what are you trying to work towards? Sure. Um, we are a sister organization of Jewish Voice of Peace in America 
and share with them the same outlook on Zionism. Uh, we're both uh, anti-Zionist organizations. We don't think, um, like your last speaker, that uh, the problem is with Judaism. The problem is with Zionism. And uh, Jews who uh, actually, um, in a sense, replaced their deity with the IDF and with the Israeli Zionist state um, are also the problem uh, because they don't want um, you know, uh, others, with, that's how they look at it, Muslims and Christians who are Palestinians to live in Palestine. Uh, we are against this. We are against settler colonialism, which is bringing the problem that we see today to a crescendo that causes this terrible genocide in Gaza. Um, personally, I come from a family where both my parents survived Auschwitz. They were in Poland, were taken to Auschwitz and survived it, and then were in two other camps before the end of the war. So um, I want to say that obviously uh, with this background, I couldn't possibly support a state that yeah. actually um, creates such a, a terrible um, situation that uh, Israel has created in Gaza. Um, in this part of the second Nakba, uh, more than twice already, twice as many as died in the first Nakba have already died, and it's not even finished. Um, you know, so um, a state and uh, a society that has killed more than 30,000 people is not a state that uh, should really have a right to exist. Um, we think that um, the solution to the problem in Palestine is uh, decolonization, de-Zionation. Um, we, we need to de-Zionize the state to, um, so that Jews can live in Palestine in peace with uh, Arabs. We cannot have Zionism there. Um, we don't want to get rid of people, but we want to get rid of ideologies which are um, racist and support apartheid. And that's what we see uh, in the last 75 years in Israel. So, um, like as I, much as I like the um, last speaker's uh, message of peace, I don't think this is actually going to make any difference uh, I think the only thing that will make a difference is a change of regime. And what we are um, supporting, um, and you spoke about it in a sense, is what we call convivencia, which has existed in Muslim countries and Muslim um, regimes uh, for almost 2,000 years. Um, since um, the birth of Islam, uh, there were Jews, Christians, and Muslims living in Muslim countries, uh, and also in European countries, for example, in Spain, uh, in a situation where Christians and Jews had rights as dhimmi, and therefore they were not uh, hounded, they were not killed, they were, didn't have pogroms, uh, they didn't have the Holocaust, they didn't have anti-Semitism, uh, so actually, under Muslim rule, we saw the most amazing cultures develop um, across um, the Mediterranean. 
Uh, and this is our um, guiding um, guiding um, principle, if you want. Uh, we want um, to change the outlook of Israeli Jews, and indeed Jews as well who support Israel, because there are many of those. Um, and of course, not just Jewish, Jewish Zionists, but there are about 50 to 60 million Christian Zionists more than Jewish Zionists, in the United States mainly. Uh, we want to um, change the right look to one that allows life together for believers of the three religions and also for non-believers in Palestine, which is a country um, very important to all three religions, to the believers of those religions, and always has been. Um, so the only way life together can happen in Palestine is a democracy for all. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or if you're Christian, if you're Muslim, you have the same rights. This does not exist under Zionism. Zionism does not give Palestinians uh, the same rights. So uh, this is what uh, we are asking um, the societies to discuss. Uh, the societies in Europe could well do uh, with, uh, with convivencia, meaning life together, because a lot of the countries in Europe are Islamophobic, um, have um, racist uh, parties uh, ruling them at the moment, and this is very damaging for life together for all of us. Um, so this is what we're trying to argue and to achieve. Right, and... So anti-Semitism, but also history, the Holocaust, uh, as you mentioned, is often weaponized to delegitimize criticism of Israel. And many people coming out saying never again, but it seems as if there are different interpretations out there of what never again means. What does never again mean to you? Never again means exactly what it says. Yeah, never again for anybody. Hmm. Uh, a lot of um, Zionist Jews think that it means never again for me. Yeah. But that's not what it means. It means no other human being ever should face genocide. That's what um, the, um, the Genocide Convention uh, from 1948 uh, was, uh, it, you know, intended to achieve, uh, to remove the... Um, the punishment of genocide from the face of the earth to make it impossible to happen. Um, this has not been successful, but I want to say that for Jews of all people uh, who have faced um, anti-Semitism for a long time in Europe, not in, in the Middle East, but in Europe, and who have faced the Holocaust, um, for them or for their, their descendants, to actually commit genocide is the worst crime I can think of. Um, am I to support genocide when my whole family was destroyed by the Nazi genocide? This is bizarre. I mean, why should any Jew support this? And they shouldn't. And uh, more and more Jews are coming to this understanding that we and other organizations, um, Jewish and other organizations, are um, actually supporting and 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 uh, explaining uh, this view that uh, never again 
means exactly that. Nobody should face genocide ever. It doesn't matter what, who they are. It doesn't matter what part of the world they live in. Uh, it doesn't matter what religion they believe in or, or don't. Um, no one should have to face genocide. That is really a lovely message to um, end this conversation here with you. Thank you very much for being with us, Professor Zabna. It was a pleasure speaking with you, and we really hope to achieve the, the aim of never again. Thank you very much. Thank you. So we were speaking with uh, Professor uh, Haim Zabna, who is part of the organization called Jewish Network uh, for Palestine. And... Um, as we said earlier, we have some great guest callers for our listeners today, so we will swiftly be moving on to our next guest caller, which is Rabbi uh, David uh, Miva Sire. Again, apologies if I got the name wrong. Uh, he's a Canadian rabbi and peace activist. He's lived in um, Israel and Palestine for about four years. Um, rabbi David, thank you very much for being with us. Peace be upon you and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Yeah, thank you so much. <coughs> appreciate being able to be here. Thank you. So you were arrested at a pro-Palestinian protest on Capitol Hill in October. Um, could you share with us you know, your experience, what you had to go through, and what actually made you go there at the first place? Yeah. Yeah, so the, that was on October 18th, which now when I look back at it, and I think that was less than two weeks after the beginning of the Israeli assault on Gaza that has been relentless and hasn't stopped since then. It's like shocking to me, you know, how long this has gone on. Mm -hmm. But in October, an organization that I'm part of, which is called Jewish Voice for Peace in the yeah. U.S., which is actually quite a large organization with over 200,000 members, um, organized a, a very strong protest in one of the office buildings on Capitol Hill, and we essentially took it over and shut it down. Mm -hmm. There were um, about 500 of us inside the building and about 3,000 more outside, shutting down the main roads on Capitol Hill. And we stayed there demanding that the U.S. enforce a ceasefire. Um, you know, as American Jews, American citizens who are Jews, most of us have lived in Israel and been there for some time, have families there, mm -hmm. and we really feel a very strong moral imperative mm -hmm. to do what we did. And it, we stayed there for hours until we, until we got arrested, and even the arrests took hours. About 350 of us were arrested, but honestly, that is not what's important about it. What's important is the demand to stop this slaughter yeah. of perfectly innocent people in Gaza. Absolutely. There's no doubt um, what's happening is appalling and uh, it's, it's heart-wrenching um, that we're seeing these scenes on our screens daily um, and where it matters, nothing really uh, you know, is being done. Um, so, you know, coming back to your, your, your personal relationships, uh, your, your, your experience again in reaching out to Palestinians, how and where did that start? Oh, my goodness. Oh, boy. So... Really, seriously, I think when I was way younger and just getting involved as a young Jewish person in America, mm -hmm. I was quite aware that there were Palestinians. I knew that, but I didn't know much about them. I didn't know any of them. And for me, it began actually in my first year at university. 
uh, just out of my own interest, I took a course in Arabic, yeah. and there was a person in the course who's Palestinian, and I just talked with him, and I, I still remember him. It was mm-hmm. more than 50 years ago. So I've always been interested in Palestinian people and Palestinian life. And I've lived there for years, yep. as, as you mentioned. And it, I want to say it took me decades to process the yep. kind of cognitive information mm-hmm. that I had right before me <clears throat> of the Israeli brutality and yep. the Nakba and what that means. You know, yep. like I knew the facts, but my own ideas about oh, the Jewish people belong in the land of Israel, and yes, we should have our own country there. Oh, yes, that's, you know, that just dominated my my understanding of everything. It took decades for me to break through that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, I mean, as, as, as a Jewish rabbi, um, you know, when you see fellow Jews, uh, you know, or especially, you know, uh, politicians such as, Netanyahu using the same symbols, the religion, the language of your religion to justify crimes against Palestinians. How does that make you feel? How, how, I mean, what do your Jewish values actually tell you regarding the situation of Palestinians? You know, you're asking such a good question. It's very, very hard for me to embrace my Jewish religion the way I did for almost all my life. Mm-hmm. When I see it being used in such a, a like a perverted way, <clears throat> you know, you're asking such a good question. The very prayers that I say, the verses from the Torah that I like to read, you know, they're almost like inverted. And it makes it very hard for me to engage with that. And then beyond that kind of personal level, even the institutions, like virtually every synagogue, everywhere, is so devoted to defending Israel, it makes it impossible for me mm-hmm. to go in and pray with the other people. If that's what they're doing, I don't want to be any part of that. So, yeah, you're asking a good question, and I think that more and more Jews are feeling this. Yeah. And I would say a month or two ago, not so much right now, but a month or two ago, I was getting, I was getting Perfect. contacted by Jewish people I don't even know, yeah. kind of asking me, Mm-hmm. Where can they go? What can they do? Because they don't feel like they belong in their synagogue anymore. Interesting. And lastly, we want, I do want to ask you this about your experience yeah. with the Muslim community at these protests. You probably yeah. came across many Muslims. And you know, this oh, whole, yeah. whole idea of Jews versus Muslims or the Arab versus the Jews. What would you say on this? Is is this just a propaganda? Is there any truth through this at all? What What would you say on that? About what? What what are you... About the idea of uh, Muslims being anti-Semitic, which we see, you know, no. a lot of the time you see these, you know, interviews and the way these interviews are framed on mm-hmm. your televisions to their Muslim guests. Um, so so in your, from your experience, being at these protests, uh, you know, speaking to Muslims, other Palestinians, you know, Palestinian Christians, or, you know, any other person, what would you say to, to, to those who say Muslims are anti-Semitic or Islam in itself mm-hmm. is anti-Semitic? No, 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 no. That's just completely wrong. That's a, like you said, it's a kind of propaganda. People use that mm-hmm. to try to distract from what Israel is actually doing to Palestinian people. I've been in many rallies and protests. I've spoken at them. I've spoken to literally tens of thousands of people. 
you know, and I know that at least here in Canada and in the U.S., the organizers of those things are really careful. They tell people, don't, you know, don't conflate Mm -hmm. Jews with Zionism or with the state of Israel. Yeah. Like, you know, we're not against the Jews. They say that explicitly. Yes. Right? They actually make sure that that's not brought in. I mean, they can't stop every single speaker from saying what just is going to come out of their mouth. But that is not their intention. It's quite the opposite. They're very clear about it. And that is just used as like a kind of a wedge. It's completely false to say that um, being pro-Palestinian and being anti-Jewish. That's not the case. And many of us Jews know that. And we're in solidarity and active you know, participation with Palestinian organizations. Thank you so much, Rabbi David Mivan, sir. It was a pleasure speaking to you. And hopefully it's not the last Thank time you. that we speak to you. Thank you. Thank you so much Thank for joining you. us. Thank you very much. Yep. Bye-bye. Assalamu alaikum. May peace be with you. 0208-687-7878 is the Call, uh, is the number to give us a call and share your experience. I'm, I'm sure uh, most of our listeners have had some experience with other religious um, um, uh, people from uh, other religious backgrounds. So why don't you give us a call and share your experience with us and we will once again be moving on to our next uh, guest caller today which is uh, Rafael uh, Shimonov who is a Jewish peace activist from the US. He's also a radio host filmmaker, street artist, and he has a Bukharian Jewish background. So a radio host being invited to speak <laughs> to another radio. Uh, Raphael, thank you very much for being with us. Peace be upon you. Welcome to the Drive Time Show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, Raphael, I don't think everyone is familiar with the uh, Bukharian Jews, if I'm pronouncing this rightly. Mm-hmm. Um, what is that? Can you tell us a little about your background? So Bukharian Jews are a very small minority of Jews who emerge uh, from Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, uh, where we had lived with majority Muslim uh, neighbors and friends for over a thousand years. And uh, mostly after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, or the beginning of it, uh, had migrated mostly either to Israel or to the United States. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, can you share some examples of uh, Jewish Arab or Jewish Muslim solidarity within your community? Oh, absolutely. I was recently there um, and we have so many customs that are uh, intertwines all the different religions. Uh, one of them is our national origin, our national treasure, the mm. Joma, the, it's like a kaftan. It's uh, it's worn in ceremonies. It's usually made from silk and dye and different colors. Uh, and one of these garments, which is only used in like the most, you know, highest celebrations of a family or, or VIP or something, anything, mm. uh, one of these garments cannot be created without uh, both the Jewish and the Muslim community, oh, uh, really? where each community would have to bring it in. So you have the garment, and you bring it to the Sunni Muslim, and they create uh, the red and the purples and the, all the colors needed on that spectrum. And they, you don't know how they did it. It's a family secret. It's 
all natural and then you take it to the Jewish family and they do the blues and the green and you don't know how they did it. They closed the door when they did it, but you cannot make these garments without the entire community. Well, that is um, but there, amazing. Yeah. There had, it is amazing, but there also had been solidarity during hardships mm. where, you know, under the guise of communism, what we saw was the so the Russians uh, very much occupying Uzbekistan and making it a client state and pulling its resources and all those things and uh, di- trying to divide Jews and Muslims in the community as well as other people. It's a very diverse community. There's Koreans and Afghans and Tatars. A, a lot of people mm-hmm. existed in Uzbekistan and or do still. Um, and there was this, what we call like radical solidarity between the rabbis and the imams uh, in the face of, of that oppression. And I don't know if you have time for another example of that, but yeah, sure. there's, yes. there's many. Oh, sure. So one of those examples would be as the Soviet Union would outlaw religion, um, they, of course, were too, you know, scared <laughs> to harm any mosque. Mm-hmm. Because of what what would what would occur after the anger would occur, so they would treat mosques and protect mosques as museums, not a place where you're allowed to worship, but as a museum you're allowed to visit. Um, so when Jews had our ceremonies, including Muslims, had our ceremonies like a bar mitzvah or a, a bris for the child when the child is born, the Jewish ceremonies. We didn't have a sometimes a synagogue or a temple, a Jewish temple, mm. because those were also outlawed to create, to build. So we would go and visit the museum, and the imam would help us do the ceremony with the rabbi, the Jewish ceremony with the rabbi secretly, uh, beyond the eyes of the of the Russian occupier in that case. And uh, together, we're able to do that, and then. Uh, halal halal preparation of food, of course, was also illegal, as was kosher preparation of food. But um, in the times when Jews had relationships with the police who could look the other way during uh, pre- preparation of, of kosher food, um, it was, again, the imams and the rabbis that worked together, and the imam declared in this case, when you do kosher here, it is equivalent to halal, yeah. um, so that people can have halal. So uh, there was always this exchange of solidarity in the face of that. And it's sad to me today that it's not spoken about. I'm very grateful that I can share these examples on, on your show today. Absolutely. And I mean, uh, it is very sad that all we get to know uh, on on. Uh, media platforms or news outlets is 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 all this uh, toxic stuff that is being said. But these great yeah. and solidarity examples that is just not being shared enough. Um, have you always been involved in in peace activism? And what what was your uh, motivation to get involved? I mean, being raised in the ideals that we're raised as Jews, it's very much m- uh, automatically requires you to do that. So without saying it. However, uh, a lot of people um, ignore it or reinterpret it or, uh, or it's, not a, it's not seen as clearly. So all my life I was raised with the principles of justice and peace and 
collaboration, but I did watch, you know, people um, corrupt those things or ignore them or minimize them. But so it was always present. However, it wasn't until the 2014 attack on Gaza um, where I was, uh, that's where I was really struck um, that I maybe have been lied to about um, about the you know the hopes for peace that Israel supposedly wanted or um, American politicians like ability to see Palestinians as equal people as Israelis um, and that that attack then which was very horrific not even one percent of what's happening now that attack then mobilized me for the first time in a, in a very serious way. Right. And though we are running against time, uh, one thing I would like to know, um, Rafael, is in regards to the situation in the U.S., because we know that the elections are coming up. So what is it like in the U.S. currently uh, with the government supporting Israel? <sighs> I mean, it is self-sabotaging. It's a, it's a Democratic Party that understands that there are swing states where Arab, Muslim, uh, Palestinian people are going to be deciders in a lot of these races and basically making it impossible for someone, not just of those populations, but of anyone who's against genocide, making it very impossible for them to vote with with a good heart. Um, And it's just troubling to see someone self-sabotage their own chances at, at maintaining their control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rafael, uh, thank you so very much for, for being with us and sharing some really amazing stories of solidarity with us. And we all hope and pray to get together that uh, the future of, of this conflict and generally the future of uh, humanity looks much brighter than it is today. Thank you for, for, for being with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. So this was um, Rafael uh, Shimonov, who is a Jewish peace activist from the U.S. He's also a radio host, filmmaker, street artist, and he has a Bukharian Jewish background. Uh, great stories that we got to hear from Rafael. And these are the, the kind of stories, these are the kind of incidents and anecdotes that need to be shared more. Yeah, absolutely. People need to see the realities that inside we're all the same. Our hearts are in the right place. It is only a handful of people that are unfortunately deciding the fate of of, of humanity and they are hiding behind this cover of religion. Yeah, 100%. I think it's just, why aren't these being shown? Right, like why isn't this is what's prevailing across social media? There's clearly an active, like... Manipulation. Attempt, yeah, to... to not put this at the forefront yeah. right yeah. and at the end of the day it's it's why we do shows like this because you know we want to get this message out there that it is yeah. not as it may seem like yeah. you were talking about echo chambers earlier right yeah. that just go beyond your your regular information and you will find the truth out there i think that don't just keep consuming have that like yep. have a varied um media <coughs> diet right like yep. don't don't 
just with your health you you wouldn't consume consume the same amount of food consistently try a variety of things mm-hmm. uh, and you'll learn more that there's actually a lot more belief I think one of the things that we've learned from this show today is that people like Rabbi David Mevans people like Rafael Shimon or people like Imam Imadani al-Masri they all exist around you mm-hmm. yeah they don't have to be sitting in Palestine or Canada or USA mm-hmm. look into your neighborhoods you've got people around yeah. you who are um you know who are consistent with their message you know they stand up for the rights of humanity right and and these voices have to be amplified and that's that's that that's one of the reasons why we are doing this program when we discuss the islamic history when we discuss what the scriptures say when we discuss um how the holy prophet peace be upon him lived lived his life or when we discuss or and, and when we speak to you know people like that we had today on mm. our uh, mm. you know on our program So it's it's wonderful there's so much to learn from everyone and also I did want to ask especially specifically with regards to the protests voicing your opinions yeah um, you know how important that is for you know some of these people about of course we didn't have a time to do that um so yes look look around you look into your communities do what you can this is what the prophet of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam has told us he says balligh anni walaw aya he goes convey from me even if it's an aya yeah even if it's one verse of the Quran yeah So taking that message forward do what you can do exactly. do what what's in your capacity so <clears throat> you know where this is not a religion this is not uh, a people who are hopeless you know this is a religion of hope this is something that you know the the you know the the, the narrative changing is in our hands mm. right so mm. i think this is the belief that we need to have and with that belief we need to work and i think we one of the things we need to highlight is what the ahmadiyya muslim community and specifically khilafat ahmadiyya you know the 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 fifth caliph of the promise of Allah peace be upon him since this conflict has been going on t- you know since since the time of uh, 7th of october but yeah. way before that the entire history how uh, you know zafrullah khan sahib you know who was a prominent member of this community yeah. played his, it's it, you know his role at this time or the second khalifa mm-hmm. how in his time played his role so now yeah. it's our time yeah it's our time to play that role it's our time to you know convey that message it's a lot easier for us to sit here on you know on a radio program and there are thousands of people that are listening to us so this is our message to them hmm. to amplify your voices you know uh, and 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 stand in solidarity with whoever is being persecuted and going through this opposition it's not just about the people of palestine that's what we're seeing now yeah. but around the world people of kashmir anywhere you see you hmm. know um, injustice being uh, you know taking place you have to stand up and voice your opinion this is a this is a commandment of islam it is something islam you know desires of you Absolutely, and I mean, what what does Islam say? Chapter two of the Holy Quran: Surely the believers, and the Jews, and the Christians, and the Sabians, whichever party from among these truly busy believes in Allah in the last <coughs> day and does good deeds, shall have their reward with their Lord, and no fear shall come upon them, yeah. nor shall they grieve. So whether you are a Muslim or you are a Jew or you are a Christian, you are a Sabian, as long as your heart is in the right place. You 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 believe in the existence of a true living God. You believe in the last day, and you do good deeds. You'll be rewarded accordingly. There is no reward for a uh, Jew that behaves in a bad manner, and there is no reward for a Muslim that behaves badly and does sins as well. Yeah. Similarly, I mean, at, at another occasion in the Holy Quran, it's again stated: For every people, we have appointed ways of worship. which they observe so let them not dispute with thee in the matter of the uh, islamic way of worship and call thou the people to thy lord for surely thou art the right guidance that's that, that's all you're supposed to do right give them the right message give them the yeah. true message give them the peaceful message and let them live as they want to live
Absolutely. And also lastly, uh, there there is another verse of the Quran in chapter 49, verse 14. And we was talked, this is Surah Hujurat, where you know, we were speaking about uh, anti-Semitism. There's, there's no such thing that exists at all in the scripture. Yeah. And this one verse should should say it, should 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 explain to everyone. Allah the Almighty says, all mankind, we have created you from a male and a female. Mm. And he have made you into tribes and sub-tribes that you may recognize one another. That's the purpose of our difference. Yeah. So mm. that we can recognize one another. Verily, the most honorable among you in the sight of Allah is he who is the most righteous among you. Yeah. Surely mm. Allah is all-knowing and all-aware. So this, 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 this should put into perspective, you know, from the th- you know, theological position of Islam, where Muslims stand. And if a Muslim is ignorant of this fact and he goes around, you know, uh, stating anti-Semitism, you know, statements and, you know, actions, then yeah. he has nothing to do with this, the Prophet or the t- t- teachings of Islam. Mm. So I think this is the time to... To bring people together, this is the time to do exactly what you know the the community of Ahmadiyya community is doing in Haifa, is bringing in those people yeah. because there will be a lot of questions that these Jewish communities have because the propaganda that they're being fed to is the propaganda of the Israeli government, so they don't they don't have any other opinion to listen to, hmm. right? So this, this this is what they're doing there, and and I think here in in the UK where we can voice our opinions, you know we should we should also reach out within our you know communities, our neighbours, hmm. and 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 also ask them what do you think of this conflict. You know, what, what should we do about it? So I think this yeah. is where we should... You know, something has been told to you since you were born. Mm. Yep. Now, sometimes we say, look, why are they, why are they not l- listening to us? If we are speaking the truth, why are they not listening to us? But you need to understand that there is... Uh, actively, they are being indoctrinated mm-hmm. since their very childhood. Yeah. A message was given to someone maybe for the past 20, 25, 30, 35 years. Yep. How will one tweet... Or one message of yours change this there has to be a lot more coming from us mm. yeah and yeah i just wanted to echo uh, what both of you are saying because we can make a difference right i know there's a lot of people out there who are worried to talk about these things um you know they're nervous but at the end of the day it's really important for us to make a difference by just having those conversations on that local level if we all do that if we all speak about this on a local level then you know, we can actually make a worldwide impact. Perfect. And that brings us to the second hour for today. Uh, thank you very much for joining in. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, again, great uh, production from our producers today, uh, Nabila Shah and Anita Nasser. So thank you very much to our producers, as well as our tech genie at the back, Sher Yar Khan, who can get done everything you need when it comes to radio so thank you very much for joining in and we hope to have you back again tomorrow until then assalamu alaikum may the peace and blessings of allah be upon you all